Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and we are just 63 days until inauguration, if we make it. Is anyone actually watching what our current president, Donald Trump, is doing? The madness of Donald Trump seems to be growing uh, with his desperation. The clearer it becomes that he has absolutely lost the election, the worse his actions seem. Yet, Joe Biden, our president-elect, is busy putting his government together, naturally, and the Q loyalists are busy inventing more claims of voter fraud. And we on the left, well, let's admit it, it's not really in vogue to attack Trump anymore. It's all in vogue to take down a neoliberal or two, and we will do that, and no one loves doing that more than I. It is a favorite pastime. But as progressives, we have a more immediate, and I mean immediate, challenge. The Biden administration has to focus on its big tasks, immediate tasks, and we have to make sure that they get to those tasks right. A fair and equitable plan to end the pandemic, that thing, you know, the thing that's spiking right now, and a just strategy to revive the spiraling economy and put people back to work and protect them with fair wages and and, uh, the right to unionize, for instance. We cannot afford distractions, but that is just what Donald Trump is doing right now. He is sprinkling chaos everywhere. He is the great disruptor. And he's probably going to do something while we're taping the show. Every five minutes, I get a new alert on my phone that there is another crisis that he has manufactured. We need to get smart. We need to think deeper about why Trump is doing this in the last 63 days. Who benefits? Who benefits from Trump's chaos? His donors? Maybe some. His Republican colleagues? couple maybe? Not just today, but in the months and even years to come, we have to keep thinking about who is benefiting. Let's think about it ourselves right now. First, we should be clear that this is no longer about winning the election. If that wasn't clear before, it was certainly clear yesterday in Wayne County, Michigan. The two Republicans on the Wayne County election board blocked the certification of the vote, which Biden had won by more than 300,000 votes. That triggered an uprising of voters, including voters in Wayne County's biggest city, Detroit. Angry citizens accused the Republicans of trying to steal their votes. They were right. They demanded that their votes count. Shocking. Because Republicans just love not counting votes in cities. Hmm, I wonder why. The Republican game was to shut down by the voices of the voters. But they lost that effort when won for democracy. Remember that. We and our allies have a lot of power, and we must keep using it. Powers like our voices, our feet, and whatever remnants of democracy we do have. The Republicans back down, and the Michigan vote for Biden will go through. That moment was the end of any possibility that Donald Trump can actually reverse this election. Let's just be clear. Biden will be president. So that is not what Donald Trump is up to anymore. Yet the disruptions, the disruptions continue. Even yesterday, as his Wayne County gambit was collapsing under the fury of voters, Trump fired the head of the Homeland Security Group that was in charge of protecting the election against interference, foreign and domestic. The group had said the the election was, quote, the most secure in history, not exactly consistent with the Trump message that the Democrats stole it somehow. So at 7 p.m. Eastern last night, Trump tweeted that he had, quote, terminated the head of the group, Christopher Krebs. Trump said Krebs had been, quote, highly inaccurate in claiming the election was secure. According to Trump, quote, there were massive improprieties and fraud. Now, we know this is bull, but what is more significant is that Trump knows this is bull. By 7 p.m. last night, Trump knew full well he has no way to reverse the election. So why... Did he fire Chris Krebs? Vengeance? Well, we can never discount Trump's capacity for a personal vendetta. But what if that is the cover for a bigger thing that's going on? Listen, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, at least most of the time, but we also should not be naive. Instead of trying to suss out what is going on that dumpster fire we call the mind of Donald Trump, try looking at this from the point of view of who gains by what, is, what Trump is doing. Who gains from that? Chris Krebs and his group at Homeland Security were responsible for protecting the election from interference, both domestic and foreign. In other words, they are important players in national security. 
okay, whether we agree with the national security or not is one thing, but dismantling it is another. Just like the defense secretary and the council of NSA, both of whom Trump replaced in the past week with cronies of his, his allies in the last week. Why? Trump isn't just clearing out those who stood in his way. He is clearing out those who could stand in his way. If you were going to launch a coup, that is how you begin. But even if there is no coup in the next 63 days, Donald Trump is creating a day one problem for Biden that Biden should not have to focus on with so much to do with the immediate crisis of the economic disaster and COVID, not to mention inter-party wars that the neoliberals instigated and oh, climate change. Those are just a handful of things he has to deal with on day one. Trump is creating openings for possibly his brotherhood of autocrats by creating chaos and crises right now, more. Remember in 2000 when the Clinton administration took out all the W's off the keyboards in the White House? That was their payback. Trump is to eliminate security oversight, sell off protected and geopolitically important Alaskan oil refuges, fire the leaders in defense. So 60 days of the US spiraling out of control while the president elect is scrambling. What is he up to? We have to keep an eye on Trump. None of this is good for progressives or the American people. We have to watch global hegemony. Okay, we have a great show today. We have Jackie Wang, the author of Carceral Capitalism. Then later we talk about this neoliberal love affair with Lindsey Graham and oil lobbyists with Jordan Zacharin and Simon Rode. But first, if you are not already, make sure to click that like button, smash it, smash it, smash it. And if you're not subscribing, please subscribe right now. This is the time and, and the little bell. So you know when we go live, because tomorrow I can tell you a little sneak peek, we have a special interview in the evening. So you won't know unless you have that alert button up there, you know, the bell rung. Um, and if you are not already, join us on Patreon because that is how we make this show happen. That is how this beautiful anti-corporate media media <laughs> exists by our patrons who are, are keeping us afloat. Join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will be back after a quick break to talk about carceral capitalism. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. All right, uh, so many forms of capitalism out there. It's almost hard to keep up. Uh, our next guest is Jackie Wang. She's the author of Carceral Capitalism, and she's an assistant professor of culture and media studies at the New School's Eugene Lang College. Uh, Jackie, it's so great to talk with you. I'm really, really fascinated by your book and uh, what you've brought to light, which I think folks probably have a sense of, but you just packaged it in one place. It was like, you know, a manifesto on what they're up to. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. I'm, I usually don't get the opportunity to be a talking head, so it's an honor. <laughs> I'm usually talk, talking to academics, so. It's almost like uh, cable news doesn't want to talk about substance or. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, so Jackie, you know, you wrote this book, Carceral, Carceral Capitalism, which is a mouthful. Uh, it came out last year and, and, you know, it's, I think, especially going into this new administration where there's been so much criticism of the crime bill of the nineties that Joe Biden helped, uh, write was the architect, you know, one of the architects of, um, you know, and my hopes, my hope is, and of course, Kamala Harris's, uh, record as a prosecutor, my hope is we are more equipped this time around and more awake as a movement to really push back and all folks um, intersectionally push back on this, this, this capitalistic um, strategy that really just hurts black and brown communities. And, and, you know, I wanted to kind of go over just point by point, some of the things that you bring up in your book um, that I think, you know, maybe some of the ones that are less obvious that, that we could kind of use as, like like bridges to neoliberals um, who may have thought like something like a charter school was a great idea, but don't understand the carceral aspects of that. So let's, let's start with that. Let's start with charter schools. How are charter schools and, and predatory lending, for instance, uh, how is that essentially just racist? <laughs> yeah, so 
I mean, charter schools is a good place to start because if we're thinking about neoliberal ideology, it's it's so much based on this idea that you need to shrink the state, um, you need to shrink the public sector, and you need to siphon money from the public sector into the financial sector. Um, so in many ways, you know, I'm talking about the criminal justice system and the way that wealth is transferred to the financial sector through the criminal justice system. But we can think um, similarly about charter schools and education that is uh, profit-based, which basically siphons public money into um, private hands, essentially. So, and, you know, charter schools are um, often very um, surveillance-based. There's a way in which um, strict surveillance, um, strict enforcement of rules, which creates like a kind of militarized environment is used as a disciplinary mechanism in charter schools. So uh, if you need a pretext to kick someone out of the school um, because it, it's, it's gonna hurt the metrics and going to hurt funding overall, uh, you need to have Um, you know, basically rules that can serve as technicalities to get students out. Um, So I am for policy that uh, pushes against, um, you know, that neoliberal ideology, whether it's in criminal justice or education. You you say this because, and for folks who aren't familiar, you know, charter schools, um, you may have seen that movie like Waiting for Superman for instance that came out like a decade ago in the Obama years and I think Cory Booker was a big part of that movie and you know and then there was uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg who who put a ton of uh, money into the Newark uh, charter school agenda movement you know shifting public schools into this partnership this like public private partnership with charter schools I guess is like a very simplistic way of saying it but what was really um, eye-opening, I think, over the last few years is that the promise that was made for these charter schools through this propaganda just didn't fall, like, it, it, like even their, their, their metrics that they use, which they manipulate, they still are worse than public schools. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I worked um, as a tutor when I was an undergrad, and this was after the No Child Left Behind Act created all these scam tutoring companies um, that basically had no quality control whatsoever. So they're just these companies that sprung up. Um, They would get, I believe it was $50 a head for, you know, one hour of tutoring, and then they would pay the tutors $20 and then the company would pocket the rest. And I saw them manipulating the numbers to make it look like there was uh, improvement over time amongst the students. So I really do think um, private public partnerships can just be huge scams. Uh, It is just a mechanism to siphon money into the private sector. It's also a tax break for a lot of these different institutions. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, using the, the lending systems, the, the predatory lending um, aspect of carceral capitalism. Can you explain a little bit? Yeah. So in in my book, Carceral Capitalism, um, I talk about um, predatory lending, which is um, ways of extracting huge profits from poor people, especially poor people of color who have to live paycheck to paycheck. And this is by the private sector. And then I talk about parasitic governance, which is plunder by the public sector. Um, So with um, predatory lending, um, I really hone in on things like um, payday, uh, payday loans, for example, Loans that um, give uh, poor people money to spend in the moment, but charge huge interest rates. It's like a, um, you know, unregulated mode of extraction. And, you know, we see these forms of predatory lending, not only in the payday loan industry, but also if we look at for-profit colleges, 
Trump University, if we want to talk about uh, the outgoing administration as an example of this, you have these um, unaccredited universities um, that prey on poor people and give um, junk degrees, essentially. And even some that are, are accredited, like like Phoenix, what is it called? Phoenix University and, mm-hmm. um, and like those technical schools that are always, you know, the ads are always out you know, for, for, for those technical schools are really expensive and, and, and they don't necessarily, you know, maybe in some, maybe some technical degrees help, but I, yeah, I mean, education <laughs> is built on just a horrible, horrible business model. And it's just, you know, it's something that I, I struggle with. Um, Cause I, I know my students are going into debt to, um, you know, study at a private school. So certainly the business model of universities is just terrible for students. Okay, so let's, um, what about some other aspects that may be a little bit lesser known um, in terms of the the carceral uh, capitalist (laughs) components? Yeah, that's a great question because I um, I think that when people think about um, the prison industrial complex, or the relationship between capitalism, capitalism and prisons, they tend to think about for-profit private prisons, which are important to push back against. Um, but the majority of prisons um, that are operated in the United States are public prisons. The private prison um, market is relatively small when compared to the number of public prisons that there are. So I try to shift the emphasis, not only from focusing on private prisons, but also looking broadly at the carceral system. Um, One area that I zoom in on is um, looking at the use of um, police and the courts to raise revenue. Um, This was something that we saw happening across the country in the wake of the 2008 financial crash. So um, municipalities that were strapped for cash um, and experienced uh, severe revenue shortfalls resorted to using the police to fill those revenue gaps. Um, So this basically created a situation where police officers would write tickets incessantly um, in order to just try to raise money for municipalities. Like, like for instance, in New York, stop and frisk. Is that the sort of situation? Yeah. Policies? Yeah. I mean, certainly, yeah, the policing of um, misdemeanors is, is a huge part of it. Uh, citations for things like not having your trash can lid properly affixed to the trash can or your lawn being too long, long. These kinds of things were used as a pretext to just en masse um, issue these tickets. And then um, basically, if people didn't pay those tickets, there would be a warrant out for their arrests. Um, So this created a situation where um, people became ensnared in debt um, because they kept, they owed the state money. And then it created a feedback loop because if you can't pay that money, you might get more fees and fines. And there are all these um, rules that emerged um, to also um, charge people more money. So if they showed up, uh, if we, you know, the Ferguson report um, that the Department of Justice did in the wake of the Ferguson uprising revealed that there were all kinds of gnarly practices, like shutting the courts after 9 a.m. So anyone who showed up late to their hearing would be issued a citation. Things like that, that, that basically ensnared people in that cycle of debt. And, you know, and there's, there's one of the reasons why folks like the cash bail want to end cash bail, but, you know, even the systemic issues, I can only speak from, a, from New York, but, you know, being late to a hearing uh, within a very undependable subway system, right. I mean, this is real. It has real consequences on people's lives. And, um, and if you have a warrant out for your arrest over something like completely inconsequential, like a, not knowing that you were fined for a garbage can or, or whatever, um, 
and then you get stopped for something else, you know, you're sent to Rikers. And if you don't have the money, then you're stuck in that system. Right. Um, Exactly. It compounds over time. Exactly. So um, I guess my question in regards to that is if people are more aware of the certain, I mean, there are campaigns around, for instance, closing Rikers and in cash bail. I mean, a lot of this stuff has come to light for folks who are unaffected in, in personally unaffected and also just folks that have been affected, but didn't understand the predatory aspects of it. And so the, the movements have grown. Um, I mean, questions like this were brought up during the presidential debates. You had former neoliberals or current neoliberals moving to the left on criminal justice, like Cory uh, Cory, uh, Cory Bush. Cory Bush is definitely to the left. Yeah. <laughs> Cory Booker. <laughs> um, so I guess, like, looking at the the state of this country right now, where we're we're our economy is is spiraling, and states are saying cities are saying they don't have enough money now, mm-hmm. and states are saying they don't have enough money, and the federal I mean something has to give because how do you go from austerity current austerity is the status quo to even more austerity and mm-hmm. now especially as people are fully aware of what's going on whereas in, in like you know the two thousands and two thousand it was very experimental and but like it's been pulled back. The curtain's been pulled back. Yeah. I mean, the current um, situation is one that concerns me deeply. Um, and cause if, you know, so much of my book was about um, the urban fis- the new urban fiscal crisis uh, and what happened when um, austerity was implemented in places like Detroit Um, and other cities that um, were teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. This recession is way worse than 2008, especially um, for states and municipalities. It's the worst cash crunch since the Great Depression. Um, So potentially looming on the horizon is a recession unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime. And unlike anything my parents have seen in their lifetimes. Um, And given the deadlock in Congress now around passing a stimulus bill that has um, money set aside for states and cities, uh, it's looking pretty bleak, the the outlook. Um, I do worry about... um, you know, cities ramping up the use of the police to fill those revenue gaps, because that was something that ramped up post-2008. It's going to be very tempting for cities to start doing that, especially if they uh, can't raise revenue in taxes because people aren't at restaurants spending, Um, you know, sales taxes um, will be down. Um, So I am concerned about that. But there is also an opportunity here to push for scaling back prisons and police in this moment. Historically, prisons and police have been recession-proof because um, the police unions and correctional, correctional officer unions have had so much political power and have really insulated the carceral system from um, being drained of resources. So that is going to be a huge struggle, but I am um, hopeful that um, the summer of protests have politicized public finance in a way that it hasn't been prior to May, 2020. Well, I mean, it's being discussed, but uh, very rarely are you seeing any Democrats stand up and take on (laughs) the police. Although yesterday, I will say my state senator, uh, Deputy Leader Mike Chinaris, got into a little tiff with the uh, Police Benevolence Association, and they threatened him on Twitter, like physically, said, you know, watch your back, look over your shoulder, which is I've never seen anything like that. And first off, I, you know, it's very rare that any New York leadership steps up and, and, and takes on um, the police union, which, of course, endorsed Trump. So with that being said, there's also this police state, um, the protests that existed this summer and continue on in, in places like Portland and, and in New York. Um, the police presence has amped up 
like it's 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 like jaw dropping. Like we've never I've I've personally never seen that many police on the streets during protests, even minor the small little protests where folks to show up in support of 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 black trans women, for instance. Um, obviously, some of this is it might be related to Trump, but it also just seems like the old line: "Don't let a good crisis go to waste." And the systems in which it's not just that there's police presence and that they can make money off of in a time of austerity, but there's also the other aspect that it's um, th- there's a, a monitor. They're, they're monitoring folks. There there's like spy programs in place. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Just the it's it's very eerie and it's it's really strange that I mean, other than just like silencing movements, I think what's so strange about it and what you wrote about was so interesting is it's, there is a direct capitalist um, component to it. Yeah, so um, New York is a a very particular case where there was a policy pivot towards decreasing reliance on um, imprisonment and increasing reliance on um, surveillance and hyper-policing. There is a kind of shift in resources where more money was injected into the NYPD, for example. So they have a $6 billion budget. And the cost of um, policing in the past four decades has tripled and is around uh, $115 billion annually. Um, so if you Actually. just... Nationally. Yes, nationally. So if you just look at police budgets, they've just been ballooning over time. And part of the reason why um, this is happening is because the police have become basically um, a substitute for social services. It's the police function as, you know, a a cat, a catch-all agency that responds to things and micromanages people's lives, um, but um, in the absence of robust social services. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's proven to be um, failed social policy, um, but basically the United States has chosen um, a policy path uh, that is based on um, hyper-policing. Um, And so in New York City, um, New York City, they spend more on policing than the Department of Health, Homeless Services, Housing Preservation and Development, and Youth and Community Development combined. So it's just so glaringly obvious that they've chosen policing as a substitute for robust social services. And with that, they've experimented on on so many different um, fronts is like, you know, counter-terror or whatever they want to use your, as your excuse. But you you talk about, can you explain what cybernetic governances and algorithmic policing, I mean, uh, whether they're connected or not, just those two things really blew my mind when I read them. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, um, I, would, I would say if you want to understand policing today, you also have to look at the military industrial complex because a lot of, um, not only um, military equipment. So that was the, um, the 1033 program that has gotten a lot of attention, which basically enables um, the federal government to give military equipment to local law enforcement. Oh, Wait, all- but can I, can I just for a second? when we say local, we don't mean New York. Like this is like being sent to like North Dakota right. and like, like the, the, you know, rural police forces with like towns of population of, you know, a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand. It's mind blowing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, the federal government has, is, you know, hugely responsible for the militarization of the police. And that was the optics of it was just, um, it was so jarring when, you know, we saw the Ferguson uprising and the armored tanks and the tear gas and everything. Um, and then we also need to look at the technological relays between the military and local law enforcement. Um, so, um, counterinsurgency predictive tools that were used initially um, abroad in places like Afghanistan and Iraq have been repatri- um, repatriated and commodified and sold to local law enforcement as predictive policing. 
software. Um, this is something that I talk a lot about in my class, carceral technologies. We're really focusing on the technological dimension of the carceral state. Um, so predictive policing software basically takes um, crime data and tries to make predictions um, about where crime will occur or generate um, heat lists where basically there's, um, you know, a list of people who the software deems likely to commit a crime. And this is something that I think is also expanding um, during the coronavirus pandemic. It's kind of cre created an opening for the adoption of a lot of these surveillance technologies. Bizarre. I mean, how, <laughs> I read this story today, and we're going to cover this probably, I'm hoping next week. Um, I read a story in The Intercept about how the Dakota Access uh, protest, the, the pipeline protest, Apple, uh, there were, there were, they were doing very similar things. There were, there were private firms formerly, you know, doing counterinsurgency work in Afghanistan specifically, as soon as you said that made me think of it. And they were uh, essentially trying to figure out like, you know, they had people in the protests that were, were spying, right. Their ops. And they were using this technology to kind of figure out like who, what the patterns were. And it's, it's really mind blowing to me because it's not, it, it, it's straight up warfare, in my opinion, and mm -hmm. happening, you know, these private firms are now, the, forget about Iraq, when we hired private firms, we're hiring them at home to, to work with law enforcement to protect a pipeline. I mean, that's just the pipeline itself, but this is happening, being duplicated everywhere, as you're saying, um, in places like Ferguson or any of these protests with the, uh, the George Floyd protests, which leads me to this next question um, before we wrap up. Donald Trump has... Uh, <laughs> has has like has done everything in the last uh two weeks basically to dismantle whatever like pushback there was on you know for instance the pushback there was in taking tanks to the streets for instance um sending the military out uh during the george floyd protests around the country um he clearly had an agenda to suppress movements but i think a lot of folks would say are we sure that Donald that, that that Joe Biden is going to act differently? When you look at his transition team list and you see how many folks come from, you know, formerly CIA folks, formerly you know counterterrorism folks, we, folks who worked in Afghanistan specifically to um, on counterinsurgency efforts, like. <laughs> What do you expect? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, looking at um, Biden and Harris's records, I don't feel particularly hopeful about their records on um, criminal justice in particular. Um, you know, one thing th that might be promising in relation to Biden is he's very politically opportunistic. So if the political tide moves in a certain direction, he might jump on that bandwagon. Um, but even in response to the George Floyd protests, he said, we need to increase funding, um, basically create, more, basically give more federal dollars to local law enforcement um, for allegedly things like diversity trainings and implicit bias trainings. Um, but I think that that strategy of, of increasing funding to the police under the guise of re reform is incredibly dangerous. And it's, it is how we got to where we are today. Um, you know, even looking at um, the creation of the LEAA, uh, the Law, Law Enforcement Assistance Administration in 1968, um, the goal of that federal agency was to um, give federal dollars for prison construction and corrections improvement. And the argument was that the criminal justice system was going to be modernized and made more just through dispersing those funds. And what happened in that case, that was the buildup to mass incarceration. That is how um, we got here today. So I do think it's very dangerous to make the argument that you need to increase funding to the police um, under some kind of guise of reform. And in such a 
disturbingly grotesque response to the uprisings of the 60s. Yes, exactly. And it was it was explicitly um, a response to those uprisings as well. Hmm. Yeah. And and it's interesting because even, you know, like the Kerner Commission, um, which was, you know, written in the wake of urban unrest, um, they found the criminal justice system um, was unjust and um, the proposals were to address poverty to kind of legitimize criminal justice. Um, But, um, you know, when those funds are there and then we move into the law law and order period starting in the 70s it just whether or not it's for improving the the carceral system doesn't really matter those resources are there those prisons are built you have more police officers on the streets and then it just gets converted into law and order policing um, so, yeah, I, I certainly think that the buildup of the carceral system and mass incarceration is connected to the backlash against um, Black power. Unreal. Well, um, you know, if only Joe Biden felt uh, the way he did about police um, towards schools. I mean, he, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yep. there's, there's always there's always enough money to uh, to put more into the police state, but never enough for schools. <laughs> yep. All right. Um, before you wrap up, is there anything else that like I'm forgetting that folks would just be surprised by um, in terms of being intertwined with the, the carceral state? Um, I think um, people just need to pay attention to um, what happens in, in the moment that we're in now, this unprecedented moment in terms of the financial situation and the, the public fiscal situation is be on guard for things like pivoting to low cost um, surveillance um, measures in lieu of incarceration. So I'm thinking of GPS ankle monitoring devices. These are things that are going to be pushed for their cost saving um, advantage. And I would say people need to be on watch uh, for the expansion of the carceral net through digital surveillance um, and just, uh, you know, watch what's what's happening with um, public finance. And one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is what's happening now is there's essentially a bailout for, um, you know, based people who own stocks and assets and property um, while there's um, no money that's being dispersed to expand unemployment benefits, um, you know, um, cover people who are losing their health care, these kinds of things like unemployed and working people are getting screwed right now. And oh, you fr- mean $1,200 wasn't enough for the last nine months? <laughs> I know it's ridiculous. Like <laughs> just give people a check once. Meanwhile, done. The Federal Reserve is spending $120 billion a month pump juicing the markets. That money is just continuing to be pumped into, you know, the stock market and the corporate bond market. So Mm -hmm. I think people need to pay pay attention to that divergence, you know, no fiscal stimulus and loose monetary policy to bail out the asset owning class, just leading to a K-shaped recovery. So that's right. That's right. And, you know, just in in relation, uh, connecting the dots once more to the the, the digital aspects of surveillance, I mean, there's the direct digital surveillance, whether it's ankle monitors, GPS, and then there's the transition team that's full of uh, Uber executives and right. Amazon executives and, you know, facial recognition technology coming from Amazon. Like we should all just be a little bit more alert about these things because that was a direct decision and a very specific decision on the Biden administration in a time right. of grotesque crisis. Like, mm-hmm. like uh, Jackie Wang, fascinating. Uh, we're going to put your book in the, uh, in the bio section on YouTube so people can check it out there. Uh, thank you for coming on and love to have you back on to figure out where we go, you know, maybe in January or February, uh, once we have a better sense of what the world is going to look like. Sounds good. Take care and thank you for having me. 
Thanks, Jackie. All right, we will be right back with Simon Road and Jordan Zacharin to talk about some of the news today. There's a lot of news. I, for one, am really curious why Lindsey Graham and a bunch of neoliberals are having a love affair. I'm very curious about that. So we'll, we'll, we'll lead up with that. We'll talk a little bit about climate and some other things, but I'm gonna start with the love affair with Lindsey Graham. All right, be back in a second. Welcome back to the show, Jordan Zacharin, and welcome to the show, Simon Rode. Uh, Jordan, of course, is the, the, the founder of the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Go check that out. And Simon Rode, you know, he works on uh, the Nomi Key Show. <laughs> no, he is a former organizer uh, for the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2020, and he's a socialist writer, and he is one of our team members here. Uh, we're going to start bringing on team members uh, to spice it up and give give a little bit more, you know, just just complexity to the show. I think that's important. Um, all right, guys, I want to I want to start off with this. I, I'm like this is driving me crazy because as I was going on the show, I just saw a tweet from. Uh, from Pramila Jayapal. Um, I don't know if we can put that one up if, if we have it ready, but we've seen Lindsey Graham hang out with uh, Diane Feinstein a couple of times, uh, hugged him during the Senate hearings and then afterwards, because why not hug the guy who just brought you a conservative right to lifer? Um, we've seen a fist bump between Kamala Harris this week uh, on the Senate floor we have seen never Trumpers uh, just completely, you know, praise Lindsey Graham. We've seen Lindsey Graham cry, talking about how great Joe Biden is as a man. But I don't know if we have that. Do we find that that tweet? We do. But we have Pramila Jayapal from the Progressive Caucus now calling for Lindsey Graham to resign because it has now been corroborated, she says, that he urged the Secretary of State in Georgia to find a way to throw out legally cast ballots. There must be accountability and justice for this dangerous attack on our democracy. All right, I'm gonna go to Simon first. Do you think that Joe Biden is going to take on his bestie from the Senate? His other bestie, other than McCain. It was like the McCain-Biden, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham trio. Yeah, I mean, um hot take no i don't think so i i think like everything we've seen from these people is like all of them like they're politicians so first and foremost their interest is in in political power and these political connections that they've established um so and i mean like we were talking about on the show last week like joe biden is not really demonstrated any interest in actually holding trump accountable after trump leaves office i mean what would indicate to us that Joe Biden will have a different tune for Lindsey Graham. It was so crazy about that is, okay, so the entire campaign, the last four years have been a neoliberal dream, just challenging Trump and holding him accountable. And now that they actually have the power to do so, and they've made hundreds of millions of dollars making the case, here's like, it's no big deal. We're just gonna focus on some other stuff right now. Jordan, what do you think? Well, you know, I like, like you mentioned, uh, not, not, you know, prosecuting any of them. Trump, they want to create unity in the country, uh, as if those people who vote for Trump are, you know, going to line up behind Biden, right? They're going to say, you know what, it was really kind of you to not prosecute our guy. So we're going to vote for you in your second term. We're going to vote for Democrats. It's remarkable because these Republicans keep going further right and keep trying to mess with democracy and Democrats keep saying, well, we have to meet them somewhere. So you get pulled further and further and further to the right until the point where, not that I think they had principles in the first place, but you clearly have none. You're clearly not fighting for anything. And it's the same way even with student loans. We'll talk about that later. But it's this idea that you're going to continue to appeal to people who have no desire to work with you or vote for you. And it's not just, you know, it's, it's not just naive, it's stupid, right? It is the sort of thing where it's very, they're not going to get anything out of it. And so it only leads me to believe that maybe they don't want to. You know, we don't see them running some great race in Georgia, right? They're still talking about healthcare. That didn't work for anybody in uh, this past election. So you, you mentioned making that much money, hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe that's what they like, right? Continuing to do hashtag resistance and they don't want to have the power to really make any big changes. Joe Biden could write away $50,000 of student debt per person, but he's not going to do that probably. And so it just makes you believe that it, at some point it's not stupid. It's what they're actually, you know, these people are kind of shrewd 
And it's actually what they're trying to do. It's all, it's all I can yeah. you know, be led to believe. I mean, I, I think like we've all met these folks before. I've worked alongside them. Um, it's some of the stuff, there is no defense. And so when they have no, you like my whole, what I always tell folks if, if they want to learn about like a, where to attack folks, I'm probably giving it away is when you go for the money, it's very hard for someone to defend themselves. And so on the Unity Reform Commission, they had a lot of weird arguments about like super delegates, you know, empowering people of color when it actually doesn't, um, you know, transparent caucuses being bad for people of color. They always had some sort of response to things that like they would tie identity to, right? And even if they weren't true. But when you were following the money, the consult money, they would just freeze. They had no response. I mean, later they did. They went and attacked everybody who brought it up. But but I think what's so grotesque, and I keep using this word over and over on the show today about this moment is they have nowhere to run. Everyone sees what's happening. Everybody knows what crisis we're in. And they're still appointing Uber executives after everybody, normie Democrats were like, we're not using Uber because they're because Uber's pro-Trump. And they're appointing Uber executives to the transition team and like, you know, saying they're going to fund the police. And and now with a, one easy way, I'll go to this right now, actually, because you mentioned student loans. Um, so progressives obviously have brought up a lot of suggestions for President-elect Joe Biden to ease the economic burden many Americans are facing uh, during this financial crisis. <laughs> many, for example, are advocating for the cancellation of student debt. Sanders, Schumer, Schumer and Warren, for example, have proposed different debt cancellation measures, and it's clear that this is within the realm of executive authority. Given that student debt has reached $1.7 trillion that could have been used on housing food, spending in the economy, you know, consumer stuff that they love. I don't understand why Biden is just not, not taking this seriously. Um, I can't think of a better way to protect the economy. And even if Biden is just going to be thinking about his own political legacy, don't you think he should move just a little bit on this? I mean, you would have thought that having lived through 2009, right, with a Biden, with uh, with a oh, Biden, Obama, you know, running the <laughs> basically country, and, basically not, you know, but you're not not doing enough stimulus, getting just stopped continuously by Republicans. You would think that you know he would even selfishly realize, hey, I need to like make some difference, or I'm not going to, you know, the party's going to lose in 2022, and I'll be a disgrace, you know. But he's not doing any of that. He's not learning those lessons. I don't know if it's because you're like. You know, you've been in politics for so long. You just assume people are gonna, you know, go along with you. Does he believe in the power of his bipartisan superpower? I'm not sure, but it's it's exhausting. And you you mentioned uh, Cedric Richmond, right, going to uh, join the Biden administration. Look at Steve Reschetti. He's a healthcare lobbyist from the '90s. He's been doing this forever. Even the Obama administration did not want to let him work for vice uh, for Vice President Joe Biden as a chief of staff. The Obama administration had no qualms about all those people going to Uber, going to Amazon, going to Airbnb, all those places, Facebook. And even they, they were like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't let this healthcare lobbyist guy into you know, running the vice president's office. Now he's going to be a senior counsel to the president of the United States. That bodes very well for, you know, uh, even a public option. I'm sure that's going to happen. Blue Cross Blue Shield exec. Exactly. Uh, Simon, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I actually think that Joe Biden believes that he's going to, that he's making a difference. You know, when he was asked about this question about student debt recently, he reiterated his support for the HEROES Act, um, but makes no commitments to do any sort of executive order. Um, and sort of the problem with these sort of incremental measures, like the HEROES Act offering sort of means-tested um, relief for people, is that it doesn't it doesn't stand on a strong foundation of like actual principles. Like, do you believe like on principle that young people shouldn't have to go into debt in order to access higher education in this country? Um, and if, you know, I think if the democratic party, honestly, if, if the democratic party is to survive, it really needs to stand on some kinds of principles and then actually fight for them. Um, so it's sort of the issue that I have, <clears throat> even with Schumer and Warren's proposals, uh, is just, just like, let's make it universal. Just just cancel all student debt for everyone. Huge boost to the economy. I mean, we've got one in six American adults are carrying student debt right now. That's like millions and millions of Americans mm -hmm. uh, who can now spend that money on other things in the economy, really like getting us out of this economic rut that we're in. 
Yeah, I would say that, you know, I've been speaking with people who are going through, I mean, I have student debt, I have a student debt, but speaking with people, you know, about their own and see, see what it's like. And I don't know that Biden really, maybe he doesn't understand, you know, how much inflation has created, you know, he wants to get rid of $10,000, maybe he thinks like that's a, a million dollars to him, you know, he's stuck in like the 70s or 80s, maybe he's like, boy, $10,000, I could buy a house with that. Because um, I don't, otherwise, <laughs> no, cause no he, way to- we know how much he bought his house in, yes. <laughs> in the 70s, and it was not $10,000. Right. And so I don't think he quite understands because people, you know, it's people's parents have all these loans too. It's not just like young people. It's people who I've talked to people in their forties who weren't able to finish school because there was a death in the family. And they are still, because of the interest rates, still paying off these things in their forties. Talk to people who some, one guy I was talking to because he's, he's doing well for himself now, but you know, he's a, he's a black guy who didn't come from generational wealth. He is paying $2,000 a month in student loans. And he's still got like over a hundred thousand dollars because of all the interest that goes, you know, that, that, goes on top of it. So this is not, you know, some, you know, fairy tale principle. This is not some sort of, you know, big liberal uh, or socialist idea. This is like people being crushed by debt right now and people being just the debt compounding. I talked to one person who was in their grace period because they just graduated from a massage therapy school. And even in the grace period when she didn't have to pay, the interest was still compounding. And so there's- Oh, that's few, interesting. Yeah, there's wow. few things more predatory than student loans. And if you can get 45 million people to say, oh my God, this guy helped me. This, de- this Democratic Party helped me, made my life better. Multiply that by their spouses, their partners, their you know, parents, their kids who would be so grateful. It's a way, I'm not saying that this would create a permanent majority, of course, but it's the sort of thing that would be remembered for a very long time. You know, if Barack Obama and Democrats were on Obamacare for the last 10 years, canceling student debt is magnitudes bigger than that. And it would be so easy to do, just sign it. Someone should trick him. Yeah. So he's signing an autograph for a kid and put it on the paper. <laughs> That's why I said something on the majority report yesterday. I said, if, if, if you want the Republicans to believe that COVID exists, go on Fox News and say Hillary invented COVID. <laughs> They're all going to trust it. That's all you got to do. Yep. No, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's fascinating because like, I think what's, what, what is, I'm blown away with, and I, I just keep coming back to this is if Biden wants to have a legacy at all, he has to give just a little bit. Not to mention, if this is a... Sorry, I have noises going off in, my, in the building next door. Uh, something had happened yesterday, too. Um, if, if Biden wants... Um, you know, the, the other aspect of this is about donors, right? So there comes a point where, like, especially since they raised so much money, the Democrats raised so much money off of contributions that were not big corporate contributions. This was a very important year. It's a very different year for Democrats, even neoliberal Democrats. They didn't have to take some of this money. They didn't have to take the health insurance money. They didn't have to take the the, the healthcare industry money at all. They didn't have to take the, the, the banking industry money. The money came in because people believed the threat of Donald Trump and the Lindsey Grahams were way bigger than the neoliberal threat. But they're still siding with these folks when they actually can't take a stand. Well, you look but- at Steve Reschetti, right? He was, uh, after he left the Biden administration, you know, Biden vice presidential office, he then went to work again as a healthcare lobbyist. He, you know, all these people go work for Uber, they go back to the White House, go back and forth. I don't even know that it's donations anymore because, again, there's such a grassroots energy. It's the jobs for these people. You know, it's like you don't want to piss off your future once again employer. That's, I mean, that's all I can think of. That's a great point. Okay, so Simon, unless you have a quick thought on that, I want to I want to move quickly to climate. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I want to maybe mention one more thing that I think that's sort of sometimes missed in this discussion about student debt um, is that actually I think it was Elizabeth Warren recently pointed this out on Twitter um, about how canceling student debt and be like one of the greatest ways that the Joe Biden administration can close the racial wealth gap um, because like student debt like outstanding student debt in the United States has more than doubled in the last decade. And a lot of that falls on people of color. So, you know, if, if Joe Biden really wants to take racial justice seriously as he ought to, um, this is one of the places he should be looking. And that goes to our earlier guest, she was talking about the carceral aspects of predatory lending and, and um, education lending, especially with these, these scammy schools that have, <laughs> you know, at least there's been a little bit of oversight from the Obama era um, over the scammy schools, but Trump University, of course, uh, We'll, we'll get off. Okay. They'll, they'll survive. <laughs> All right. Let's take a look at uh, Biden's most recent appointment. Uh, you mentioned Cedric Richmond. He's a, a Congress member um, from Louisiana. Uh, the climate movement liaison. Richmond is the climate movement 
liaison. He has taken more money from the fossil fuel industry than almost all of his counterparts in the Democratic Party. That is crazy. Over $341,000 in the past 10 years while representing seven of the country's 10 most air-polluted tracks. His voting record shows that he is followed, he's following that money that comes to him. Um, Jordan, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be a little spicy. Was Sunrise duped? No, I will say that Senator Grisham is incredibly qualified for half the job. He's really good at talking with the oil industry, not as much with the, the you know, the people who go to him, his constituents. Apparently he would, he's always given the brush off. He, they always would try to talk to him. You know, uh, he's like the one Democrat from Louisiana and he would just give him the brush off. And so I don't know if they were duped, but they should be pissed, you know, and it's, it's kind of the same thing with bringing back to student loans. These people came out in record numbers, young people, especially for Joe Biden. And if he just says, thanks, guys, well, uh, good luck to you and appoints, uh, just refuses to do student loan, uh, you know, forgiveness, refuses to take the environment seriously, they're not going to come out again. You know, it's the same thing that kind of happened with Obama in 08. He had this record number of people come out and then they got disappointed and kind of dropped off in 2010, you know, and it hasn't been the same since then, really. And so they gave him or giving Biden a chance. And I think that's what they said. Democratic unity, democratic unity, democratic unity. They're giving him a chance. If he doesn't deliver, Democrats don't deserve to win and they won't. You know, and I, what I saw today, actually, uh, in England, the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson, who's like a proto-Trump, uh, even doofier, if, if possible, uh, they came out with their own climate plan. They want to, this is the Conservative Party, they want to have wind energy power every home in the UK by 2030, like less than 10 years from now. And that's the Conservative Party. Democrats can't even get off oil money. That's because they're their... aliens. No, <laughs> Democrats can't even get off oil money. It's, so it's not even like, you know, this is the rest of the way the world works. It's just, it's the United States. Okay, so Simon, I, I do want to come back to the sunrise thing, though, because I do, I feel, oh. you know, Jordan, you're 100% correct, but I'm also like, guys, we have a movement here. We have to be so strategic with how we pressure, where we pressure the movement. We can pressure them on some things, absolutely, because it's like they can't hide from it. And they're like normie Dems, even like lobbyist Dems, even like Jamie Harrison Dems who think that like, you know, democracy in a party should be, you know, there should be a little bit more democracy or some other things, right? But we knew what we were, well, come on. Like we knew we weren't gonna get, maybe he's gonna transition off of fossil fuels, maybe. But like, were we duped? How, how bad was this? Well, I think as, as Jordan pointed out, like young people really came out for Joe Biden in this election. And that is in large part to groups like the Sunrise Movement that really did a lot of organizing for him. And so when like Varshni Prakash from the Sunrise Movement says this feels like a betrayal, I mean, of course it does, because it's, it's like Joe Biden's closing the door to any future communications when he puts the person who's supposed to be communicating between his administration and these groups, like is this fossil fuel guy, like of course. But I think that it, like you said, like should they really be surprised? I mean, Evan Weber, who's another co-founder of Sunrise, said that he said this is not surprising at all, but it is disappointing. Um, and that's sort of, I think, the position we're all feeling right now. I think this is a big wake-up call for a lot of uh, progressives who've just joined the movement in different ways. You know, I had I got a lot of pushback when I was in the Unity Reform Commission saying, "How could you join? They're going to screw you. They're going to screw you." They did absolutely. With that being said, there were different pressure points there. I was not trying, we were not trying to pressure a Biden administration, a president. We were trying to pressure, or even Tom Perez, we were trying to pressure like 10 votes from Democratic Party members, and we were trying to eliminate the executives who were not elected to the DNC from the DNC so that they didn't make these decisions that were oil and gas-based decisions. This was a big one, like how to get Joe Biden, who has decades of of relationships and partnerships. You know, we always talked about the Clinton industrial complex. There is a Joe Biden industrial complex. You know, Obama didn't have that going in, but Biden does. And you have to keep in mind that at the end of the day, as you said so well, he still has his cronies that he owes things to, even if he doesn't need their money, even if he's thinking about his legacy, you know, whatever it is, even if it's about Kamala Harris, you know, taking over the presidency at some point, 
inheriting the presidency. This is a complex that is going to be very hard for us to break apart, but we have to be much more sophisticated with how we pressure and where those pressure points are. And I'm going to tell you, it's not Joe Biden himself. That's my perspective. It is people within his industrial complex. You've got to look at this like it's a war. You don't go to a battlefield and try to swipe off the general from the, you have to think about how the battlefield looks. And I'm saying this on air and I know it's really, really insidery, but um, okay, let's just wrap up with this. Jordan, um, I know this is kind of out of out of nowhere, but like if there is a pressure point that progressives can actually push Biden on, where do you see that right now? If there's a pressure point, you know, I think it's a matter of like he, he is older. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is older. Uh, everyone in the party is super old, basically everyone leading the party. And I think and I think, you know, it's I think right away we saw the Democrats, the centrist Democrats try to blame progressives for what happened and you know, damn ballot losses. I think that there's going to be. I think primaries, you know, I think that's a great way of doing it. I think that Biden needs to hear a lot of pressure from people who are in seats that could flip, you know, the Elliot angles of the world uh, too arrogant, maybe didn't think Jamal Bowen was coming, but I think now they should realize that's happening. And I think that should the first six months of the Biden presidency not go as you know expected, even the first four or five months, I think we need to see a lot of primary challenges announced. I think that these people need to be scared for their own jobs. And it shouldn't just be like, do this because we, we asked you to, or you got to do the right thing or be nice. They need to literally, the only thing that scares them is losing their jobs as a lobbyist or future lobbyist. So maybe make them worry about losing their job in Congress. So that to me is like the only way it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. But with that, we also have to be careful because they're cracking down with how progressives are able to break through. Um, you know, whether it's not being able to access voter files or raising money as quickly online anymore or eliminating political advertising on Facebook and, and, and uh, Google. I mean, these are tools that progressives used to help make up, you know, to, to raise money so they don't have to go to corporate money, essentially. And their, and their blacklist really uh, did a great job for them. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> different. That's consult. I mean, they're just dumb. They don't understand how consultants work. Consultants are going to go wherever they can get money. <laughs> Good and bad consultants. Simon, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, again, on like this long pressure points, I think that um, it's sort of like the reason that a lot of neoliberal politicians don't really want to come on shows like this one is because they know that you're going to air their dirty laundry. You're going to. How did you know that? Have we been trying to do that? <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing. It's, it's just like, actually there was, um, do you remember the climate town hall that I think Sunrise helped put together last year in September? there was all this big buzz about actually both Biden and Harris. I think Biden had a fundraiser the next day that was being hosted by a fossil fuel executive. And um, Harris was actually going to initially not attend the climate town hall because she had a scheduling conflict, which was a private fundraiser. And Sunrise raised a, a, like, a lot of fuss about both of this, uh, about both of these. And when there was like this big public backlash to them doing that, both of them changed their tune on it. And I think both of them did not go to those fundraisers. Um, so I think really bringing this stuff to light and talking about it more and exposing things like we're doing today about these bad appointments to the cabinet this is the kind of stuff that will put the kind of pressure on a Biden administration, like you said, building his legacy, that might actually get him to change. Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed that at the end of the day, he cares more about his ego than he does about his uh, relationships. <laughs> I think it's also about media as well. You know, we for forever, the media describes the left as loony and then the right wing, no matter what they do, like Madison Cawthorn talking about converting you know, Jews to Christianity and how it's not working and, and Christian blood and, all that. and he's, that's out of his mind. He should be, he should like be driven away out of the country. And, you know, that's a minor blip, but, you know, Democrats, they say we want everyone to have healthcare and it's just like, well, can they survive? Is that possible for, for Democrats to survive and wanting people to have healthcare? And so I think it's a matter of pressuring the media as well, you know, and as someone who's in the media, I think that maybe the fact that, you know, people are being attacked by right wing, you know, maybe reporters getting attacked by right wing, uh, people is enough maybe that'll uh, make them change their tune but the way things are covered as well because right now media gives a lot of cover to the centrist democrats because they act like they are the rational ones in the room when they are the least popular least effective people in all of washington you don't think that um um jake tapper asking whether or not uh, a, a a youth pastor uh was in the room with fidel castro means that he's like or who cares anyways like yeah <laughs> all right guys um such a great panel. So much to talk about. Can't wait till next week. I'm sure we're going to be spiraling into another crisis uh, or three or four. And probably by the end of the show, we've had like two things pop up. <laughs> That's the point. Um, Jordan Zacharin, 
runs Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Go check it out. Simon Rode, he is a socialist writer. He is a former organizer for Bernie 2020, and he's a part of Team TNS, the Nomi Key Show. Uh, real quick before we leave, I'm going to give some shout outs out to Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you for the love. He says, here is some cash for your caffeine requirements, $4.99, because I always talk about how every time I buy a coffee, I'm like, that's how much it costs to be a patron, an, you know, an introductory patron. So if you didn't know that, uh, when you're getting your cold brew, which can be as expensive as six fifty, I've learned, um, you could also get you know one whole month of our shows on Patreon.com/slash The Domi Key Show plus extra stuff there. And if you put in two coffees, you might get a mug. Kowalski also says hospitals are officially at ICU capacity in Nebraska. Oh my God, this is bad, but maybe it'll help for Medicare for all. I mean. I think the case for Medicare for all, like it's popular. The, the public wants it. It's, it's our politicians. Thanks to Professor Harvey K and all the hashtag no me kids mixing it up in the live chat. Was that a Harvey K or a Dorsey idea to hashtag that? Thank you to many doctors and tools for working the algorithms and huge, 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 huge thanks to our moderators, Bob and Chokin for keeping it real in the chat room. Do we have anything else there? Oh, a few more shout outs. There we go. I got bored, one, two, three, four, not from us. Malarkey industrial complex instead of the Biden industrial. That's good. That's good. Someone turned that into a super PAC. Kowalski from Nebraska again. Here's some cash for you. No, you said that already. I got that. I got that one. I got that one. Anything else? I think that is it. Just that one. Oh, those are repeats. Got it. All right. It's hard. I got to watch the, the YouTube thing and host a show and, you know, make sure that like they're not drilling for oil outside of my window, which is happening all day yesterday. There's a lot of host tasks to do. Just a lot. All right, guys, we will see you tomorrow. Uh, same time, same place. We're going to have an amazing show. And thank you to everybody for staying tuned and really caring about what's going on in the world right now, because there are moments where I'm just like, I need some wine. All right, I'll see you tomorrow.